Before starting this episode, I have exciting news for you. Because MedMins is now also providing educational YouTube videos. So go and subscribe to MedMins on YouTube so you have both options, videos and podcasts for your studies. Now about today's episode. So... Myasthenia gravis is an autoimmune disorder where the body attacks the muscle receptors that controls the voluntarily movements. And this leads to muscle weakness. As usual, I'll cover the pathophysiology, etiology, clinical presentation, diagnosis, treatment, and lastly, I'll give a case study of myasthenia gravis. You are listening to MedMints. I'm your host, Alisa Salim. Short described, myasthenia gravis is an autoimmune disorder where the body produces antibodies that mainly attacks cholinergic receptors in neuromuscular junction. And this leads to muscle weakness. Before getting into the pathophysiology, let's look at few facts about myasthenia gravis, starting with the prevalence. So, what is the prevalence of myasthenia gravis? Well, it's estimated that if you have 1 million people, well, out of that 1 million, then around 200 people will get myasthenia gravis. And when it comes to the age distribution of myasthenia gravis, it's quite unique because it has bimodal distribution, which basically means that there are two modes or two peaks. The first peak is seen in young women from around age 20 to 30 years. And second peak is seen in men around age of 40 to 60 years. So this means that when myasthenia gravis appears in younger age, so from 20 to 30, well, it is more commonly affecting women than males. But in older ages, myasthenia gravis affects more often men than females. Before talking about what happens in myasthenia gravis, we should as always first understand how the body should work. In this case, we have to look at physiology of a muscle contraction at the neuromuscular junction. So, what is neuromuscular junction? Well, a neuromuscular junction is the connection between axon terminal of a neuron and a motor end plate of a muscle. More specifically, we call the part of the axon terminal for presynaptic membrane because this part delivers neurotransmitters. And on the other side, the end plate for postsynaptic membrane because this part is the receiver. And the area in between presynaptic and postsynaptic membrane we call for synaptic cleft. And in this area is where all the exchange between these two membranes occur. So in neuromuscular junction, the motor neuron 
releases neurotransmitters, which binds to the nicotinic acetylcholine receptors on the muscle membrane, the postsynaptic membrane. When the neurotransmitters acetylcholine binds to these receptors, well, they activate chain of reactions in the muscle, which leads to muscle contraction. So this is how it should work. But in myasthenia gravis, it doesn't work this way because of the antibodies. There are several antibodies that are causing problems and leading to myasthenia gravis, but the most common one, which is seen in around 85% of the cases, are acetylcholine receptor antibodies. And in 10% of the cases, it is antibodies that are called muscle-specific kinase, also called musk antibodies, M-U-S-K. And in around 5% of the cases, it is the antibodies called low-density lipoprotein 4 antibodies that are causing problems and leading to myasthenia gravis. So let's take a look at how these antibodies are causing problems, starting with the most common antibody called acetylcholine receptor antibodies. These antibodies are immunoglobulin type G, and if you remember immunoglobulin G, well, they can cross placenta. So it basically means that it's possible for a mother with myasthenia gravis to transfer the disease to its child. So let's again take a look at the neuromuscular junction, which is the connection between a neuron and a muscle and see what these acetylcholine receptor antibodies exactly are doing. So they bind to these nicotinic acetylcholine receptors on the postsynaptic membrane, so on the muscle. And the way they bind is by cross-linking. So imagine that the antibody has two legs. One leg will bind to one receptor and the other leg will bind to the second receptor. So imagine when there are more of these antibodies binding to these receptors, well then they form a cluster which is not good. You may have heard from other resources that the main pathology of myasthenia gravis is that these antibodies simply binds and blocks these receptors. But this is an old concept because now it's actually believed that the main mechanism that causes myasthenia gravis is not just binding and blocking, but that these bindings cause cluster formation. So when there is cluster of antibodies binding to these nicotinic acetylcholine receptors, well, then the membrane will notice that there is something wrong. So the clustered area gets pulled inside through process called endocytosis. So when these cluster of receptors with the antibodies attached get pulled inside, they get destroyed by lysozymes. 
But in general, even in normal conditions, when there is any abnormal proteins on the membrane, the way it normally gets removed is by this mechanism, endocytosis, and the lysosomes that releases destructive enzymes will arrive and in this way they destroy and get rid of whatever that shouldn't be on the membrane. You may think, okay, well, that's good, so we get rid of this cluster, so what is the problem? Well, the problem here is that this cluster formation does not occur in normal pace. It happens too fast for the membrane to be able to replace these nicotinic acetylcholine receptors. And so this leads to less numbers of receptors, which means that there will be less uh, muscle contraction and therefore we will see muscle weakness in these patients. So postsynaptic membranes become very deficient in these cholinergic receptors or so-called nicotinic acetylcholine receptors. So this was the first problem of acetylcholine receptor antibodies. But besides causing cluster formation, these acetylcholine receptor antibodies, well, when they bind to these receptors, their FC portion becomes active which activate the complement proteins. And why is that a problem? Well, if you remember, the complement proteins are special proteins that are produced in our liver. And they are released to the blood and is circulating in our bloodstream. They have many functions, but one of them is that when antibody binds to an antigen, especially IgG or IgM, then the tail of the antibody becomes activated and the complement system binds to the tail. And so the complement protein causes the membrane permeability to become disturbed. So it becomes leaky. And disturbed membrane permeability is definitely not good because if that's disturbed, will the membrane stops functioning? Because imagine it's like the roof of a house. If there is a hole in the roof, well, then the heat from the home can get outside and the cold or rain can get inside from outside. And the same way, the intracellular components gets out and the extracellular components can get inside the membrane. So the membrane gets damaged and by time these areas will simply die. And so imagine when there are some parts of the membrane that dies or gets lost, well then there will be problem with the morphology because if there is less membrane, there will be less space for the receptors. More specifically, there will be less of crests of the membrane. If you remember, the membrane is like a wave, or the shape of it is like a wave. It goes up like a mountain and down again repeatedly. So like a wave, we can say. So the top is called crest and there is the receptor sitting. 
and the down part is called sarcolemma. Now think about it. What will happen when some part of the membrane is lost, especially the crest part where the receptors are sitting and where we most often will see these cluster formation and damages? Well, this membrane will start flattening out and so there will be less of these crests and therefore less space for the receptors to form. So this morphology change leads to three different things. First of all, the total surface area of the postsynaptic membrane decreases. And then the second change, which is caused by this morphology change, is that the density of receptor per unit area is decreased. And third is that there will be bigger distance between presynaptic and postsynaptic membrane. And so all these things lead to decreased neurotransmission in the neuromuscular junction, which means less muscle contraction. So this was about acetylcholine receptor antibodies, which is the most common in Mycenae gravis, seen in 85% of the cases. Now let's talk about the second type of antibody, which is seen in around 10% of the patients, called muscle-specific kinase antibodies. So how does these antibodies make problems? Well, since this antibody is against muscle-specific kinase proteins, it's important to first of all understand what the role of this protein is that this antibody is attacking. These proteins are found on sarcolemma part of postsynaptic membrane, and their role is to maintain healthy cholinergic receptors. It regulates the concentration of cholinergic receptors. So imagine when there is antibodies that are attacking these muscle-specific kinase proteins, well, they cannot maintain healthy concentrations of cholinergic receptors of the postsynaptic membrane, which leads to impairment of neurotransmission in the neuromuscular junction. Similar to the third antibody that is seen in around 5% of the patients is low-density lipoprotein 4 antibodies. Well, these proteins are usually responsible for the healthy neuromuscular junction because their main role is to maintain structural and functional activity in neuromuscular junction. So when the antibodies attacks these proteins also, well, it again leads to dysfunction of neuromuscular junction, which further leads to decreased neurotransmission and decreased muscle contraction. Now we have covered the antibodies that are causing problems in Mycenae gravis, but there is another structure that also plays a role in myasthenia gravis, and that is the thymus. And you might think, how does neuromuscular junction and these antibodies have something to do with the thymus? Well, it is believed that the thymus is part of 
triggering and maintaining the production of those antibodies against the neuromuscular junction. It's found that 20% of patients with myasthenia gravis have thymoma and more commonly around 60% of patients have thymic follicular hyperplasia. Thymic follicular hyperplasia is when the thymus increase in size because of increasing number of cells. And in thymoma, there are focal mass formations. Thymoma is seen more often in men and thymic hyperplasia is more commonly seen in women. So how is the thymoma and thymic hyperplasia connected with antibodies found in Mycena gravis? It is because in the thymus, we have cells called thymic myoid cells, which are very similar to muscle cells. So they have similar cholinergic receptors like those found in the neuromuscular junction. The function of these thymic myoid cells are still not fully understood, but it is believed that they trigger autoimmune response when the thymus, let's say, gets disturbed in case of, for example, thymoma or thymic hyperplasia. So in this way, the antibodies produced in the thymus against these cholinergic receptors on this myoid cells that are similar to the muscle receptors in the neuromuscular junction. And so the antibodies will not only attack the myoid cells, but also spread to the blood and enter the neuromuscular junction and attack the muscle receptors found in the neuromuscular junction. And in this way, well, it leads to myasthenia gravis. Now that we have talked about the pathophysiology, let's move on to the etiology of myasthenia gravis. Well, first of all, the exact cause is still unclear. Most of the patients have no family history of myasthenia gravis, and it's unknown why the disorder in some people sporadically or suddenly appears. It's seen that 3 to 4% of the patients have some family members with myasthenia gravis or other autoimmune disorders. Researchers believe that the variations in certain genes may increase the risk of getting myasthenia gravis, but exactly which gene is still unknown. Let's now understand what kind of signs and symptoms are seen in these patients. First of all, the main sign and symptom of these patients is weakness. But it's too general to just say weakness because, as you know, many different factors can cause weakness. So we must talk about different features of this weakness that are seen specifically in patients with myasthenia gravis. First of all, the weakness will be painless. So the patient will not complain about any pain related to the weakness that they are experiencing. 
Second, we have irregular or fluctuation. And by that, I mean that sometimes the weakness will be more and sometimes it will be less. But one of the very characteristics of this is that the patient with myasthenia gravis may tell you that their energy level is good in the morning, but end of the day they just get very tired and exhausted. And so the difference in the energy level is huge. Another characteristic of the muscle weakness is that when the patient sustains muscle effort, it rapidly worsens. For example, if you tell the patient to count numbers, by time the counting will slow down and the pronunciation will become unclear simply because the muscle exhaustion. This is an important factor that can help in distinguishing myasthenia gravis from Lambert-Eaton syndrome, which is another autoimmune disease where the neuromuscular junctions are also affected. So in Lambert-Eaton syndrome, well, it's totally opposite because with the sustained effort, the power increases. So that's a good thing to have in mind when you are diagnosing these patients. Also keep in mind that conditions like stress, infections, or if the person is pregnant, all these can increase the weakness because the person's body is just working even harder in these situations. Also, if the patient is taking some drugs that alter the neuromuscular transmission, like for example, certain antibiotics can worsen myasthenia gravis. So for example, imagine if there is a patient who has a myasthenia gravis and is hospitalized because of pneumonia. And so the patient is treated with antibiotics like macrolides, such as azithromycin. Well, that can exacerbate the symptoms. There are many other drugs like beta blockers, such as ismolol, metoprolol, and certain antipsychotics, for example, phenothiazine or sulpride that shouldn't be given to patients with myasthenia gravis. So it's very, very important to be aware of that. So now the question is, which muscles get affected? Well, the first muscle to get affected is those of the head and by time some patients experience that the weakness progresses to the lower part of the body. So it starts from the top and go downwards. And this is actually another way to distinguish it from the other neuromuscular junction disease, uh, Lambert-Eaton disease, because in patients with Lambert-Eaton, well, they experience weakness first from the lower part of the body first. So the first signs might be difficulty in walking, but on the other hand, in myasthenia gravis, you would see weakness in the eyes, for example, as the first thing before weakness with the gait. So that's also a good way to distinguish between these two um, diseases. 
So we said that the symptoms start in the head. More specifically, we will see weakness in muscles that are innervated by the cranial nerves. So ocular involvement is very common, where there will be drooping or falling of the upper eyelid. This is called ptosis. And also, for example, there can be weakness in muscles of the jaw, which will appear as the mouth is hanging open all the time. Because of the facial muscles have become weakened, well, these patients might look that they are sleepy or sad or expressionless uh, all the time. And so, as I said, this is because of the facial muscles have become weak. Also, they can have a very characteristic smile called myasthenic snarl that looks similar to when dog is growling, which is result of weakness of the buccinator muscle. When the bulbar starts getting affected, remember bulbar refers to medulla oblongata, um, well, then there is other symptoms that appear. For example, dysarthric speech and dysphagia. So dysarthric speech is weakness in phonation muscles, so the muscles that are used for speaking. And dysphagia is difficulty swallowing. So all these symptoms I just mentioned will usually appear at the beginning. But remember, it can progress to the lower parts of the body. So it can go to the neck, arms and legs. And if the person is severely ill, she or he might have respiratory problems because then the respiratory muscle starts to get weak as well. A way to recognize the different stages of myasthenia gravis clinically, well, then we can divide myasthenia gravis into five classes. So class one includes only ocular muscles. Second class involves mild generalized weakness. Then the third class is moderate generalized and mild to moderate ocular bulbar weakness. Then the class 4 is severe generalized and ocular bulbar weakness. And lastly, class 5 is myasthenia crisis. So around 40% of class 1 can progress to generalized weakness. And in generalized, we refer to that not only the symptoms involved for example, in the head area uh, that the patient is experiencing, but also that they might experience problems with their arms or weakness in their legs. So, so that's generalized is referred to. And then the remaining 60%, so the majority of patients usually keep having only weakness in the ocular region. So, it depends on the patient, but remember, majority of the patients will only have problems in the eye region or the head, and 40% can develop 
other weaknesses like with their neck arm well legs so more a generalized weakness now let's talk about the complications so i mentioned that class 5 is myasthenia crisis but before i go into details into what myasthenia crisis is well, it's very important to not only understand what myasthenia crisis is, but also to understand what cholinergic crisis is because they have very similar symptoms. So it's very important to not mix these two crises because it can be life-threatening for the patient. So in both cases, the patient experiences extreme muscle weakness and respiratory failure. So the question is why? Well, each has different mechanism, which is very important to understand in order to know how to treat it. So in myasthenia gravis, this muscle weakness and respiratory failure happens because there is either very low or no stimulation of the neuromuscular junction by the neurotransmitters acetylcholine. And this, of course, causes muscle to not work properly, so the muscles become weak, including the muscles that are responsible for breathing, which is, for example, the diaphragm, the intercostal muscles, so the ribcage muscles, and the abdominal muscles. On the other hand, in cholinergic crisis, the mechanism is opposite. But remember, the symptom is the same, so the patient also experiences extreme muscle weakness and respiratory failure. But the cause is due to excessive stimulation of the neuromuscular junction by the neurotransmitters acetylcholine. So too much acetylcholine. And so too much acetylcholine overdrives the receptors and so it just stops working and therefore it leads to muscle weakness. So the cause of these crises are totally opposite, but they have similar symptoms. So now the question is, how should we find out if the patient has myasthenia crisis or cholinergic crisis? Well, we can do a test called Tensilon test also known as hydrophonium test. It is a short-acting acetylcholinesterase inhibitor drug which is injected. Remember, cholinesterase is an enzyme that breaks down acetylcholine. So this drug called hydrophonium acts against this enzyme. In healthy person, this cholinesterase enzyme should be there to break down the acetylcholine neurotransmitters because it's just part of the recycling process so that the receptors are not overloaded with acetylcholine but that there is a balance. 
But in case of myasthenia crisis, we don't want these acetylcholines to be broken down at all because we are in need for acetylcholine neurotransmitters. So let's see what happens when we give this drug. So if this drug is given and let's say the patient has myasthenia crisis, well, then the weakness improves for a short period after few minutes. Because by blocking this enzyme that breaks down acetylcholine, well, then we increase the concentration of acetylcholine. And so, as we know, myasthenia crisis is caused by too low acetylcholine. So, when the test is done and there is improvement, well, then it means it's myasthenia crisis. But on the other hand, if let's say it's a patient that has cholinergic crisis, well, we will find out that the patient has cholinergic crisis after uh, giving this hydrophonium because then the patient would actually get worse because there's already too much acetylcholine. And so when this drug is given, well, that increases furthermore the concentration of acetylcholine. So it's not good. So immediately what we should do is to give anticholinergic drug, an antidote, such as atropine should be administered. So it's very, very important to have an antidote prepared before performing this test. But it's not always clear whether the patient is improving or getting worse after getting hydrophonium. So in order for us to see the improvement clearly, well, then we should ask, for example, the patient to read something out loud while performing the test so we can see uh, the improvement. And so, for example, if the patient is getting better, well, then we can see that the reading is becoming more clear, faster. And besides that, we can also check the eyes because the way we see if it's improved well, then the eyes will open because of the muscle weakness of the upper eyelid will improve. And so on the other hand, if the patient is getting worse, well, we will hear that the reading is getting even slower and we don't see this eye opening in the patients. And this uh, improvement or worsening we can see after only few minutes after injecting hydrophonium. But now that we understand all these things, then the question is, why does these patients reach these acute conditions in the first place? Well, in myasthenia crisis, the reason for why there is too low of acetylcholine can be because that the patient is not getting enough medication to increase the level of acetylcholine. In that case, we should give acetylcholinesterase inhibitor drugs so we can block these cholinesterase enzymes so they stop breaking down the acetylcholine. But let's say that the patient is already on medication well, then it can be, uh, for example, due to extra stress that the patient is experiencing or some infections that are leading to this acute worsening. In that case, we should perform plasmapheresis or 
intravenous immunoglobulin, which I will talk more about just in a bit. And of course, in this situation, we should first of all support the respiration if that's necessary until the patient is stable. But then what about the patients with cholinergic crisis? Why do they end up in such acute condition? It can be that these patients are receiving too high dose of medications that are blocking these cholinesterase enzymes. But it can also be any other cholinergic drugs and they are receiving just too much of it. So the neuromuscular junction are just getting too much acetylcholine neurotransmitters and so the neuromuscular junction is just getting overstimulated and overwhelmed with acetylcholine so they just decide to stop working instead and that's why the weakness appear well in that case to treat cholinergic crisis we should first of all stop all anticholinesterase medications and then start giving antidote like atropine which is anticholinergic drug. So how should we diagnose myasthenia gravis? First of all, history taking is important. So we can ask the patient more into the weakness and so we can understand what kind of weakness it is. As we just talked about, there are several features of the weakness, in specifically myasthenia gravis. Then we should do physical examination and lastly do investigation. So what can we investigate? We can look if the patient has some of the antibodies. So we will make a serological test where anti-acetylcholine receptor antibodies can be detected or anti-muscle specific kinase antibodies. We can also do another investigation called electrophysiological test where we stimulate the nerve to see the response of the muscle. In myasthenia gravis, the response of the muscle will be reduced. And this type we call for the decrementing response. And this investigation can also help in distinguishing myasthenia gravis from Lambert-Eaton disease because in Lambert disease, after the stimulation of the motor nerve, the response will increase. So that's the totally opposite and so it's a good way to distinguish between these two diseases. Another investigation for myasthenia gravis is to do CT or MRI to see if there is any abnormalities in the thymus. For example, thymoma or any hyperplasia. Then we can do tensilon test as I just mentioned, also called idrophonium, which is used useful in case of distinguishing between myasthenia crisis or cholinergic crisis. Again, it is important to have atropine prepared before performing this test. Now let's talk about how to treat myasthenia gravis. There is unfortunately no cure for myasthenia gravis, but some drugs as well as surgery can decrease the severity of the disease. For example, 
acetylcholinesterase inhibitors, which includes drugs called neostigmine and pyridoxigmine. The function of these drugs are to stop the breakdown of acetylcholine, and in this way they increase the concentration of acetylcholine. The enzyme called cholinesterase are responsible for breaking down acetylcholine. So that's why the name is acetylcholinesterase inhibitors. Usually these enzymes take part in recycling the acetylcholine, but in case of myasthenia gravis, there is big need for those acetylcholine neurotransmitters, so that's why we don't want them to be broken down. But the problem is that by time, these type of drugs will become less effective as the disease becomes more severe. Because by time, there will be less and less receptors left so increasing the amount of acetylcholine will not improve the weakness. Another drug that can be given is called prednisone, which is a glucosteroid immunosuppressive drug that reduces the activity of the immune system, and by that it reduces the activity of the antibodies in the bloodstream. In cases where the patient is very weak or none of these drugs work, we can do plasmapheresis or give intravenous immunoglobulin, IVIG. Plasmapheresis is a process where the plasma gets filtrated and by that the antibodies get removed. The benefit is only short term though, 4 to 6 weeks. It is mainly used in cases where the patient is poorly responding to other medications or also before a thymectomy is performed. Another treatment method instead of plasmapheresis, we can do intravenous immunoglobulin, where 400 mg per kilogram are given intravenously for 5 days. The function is that they destroy and neutralize these autoantibodies in the bloodstream, and so they block production of new autoantibodies. So myasthenia gravis can also be treated surgically by removing the thymus, so-called thymectomy. In patients with thymoma or thymic hyperplasia, the results is very good, because by removing the thymus gland, the production of autoantibodies, which are mistakenly attacking the neuromuscular junction, well, that can be stopped. Thymectomy is also shown to have good results in patients with acetylcholine antibody-associated mycenae gravis, or also in patients above 60 years of age, even without any indications for thymus abnormalities. But if they have generalized myasthenia gravis, in that case, even there is no direct indication of thymus abnormalities like a tumor, well, the thymus may still somehow trigger the formation of autoantibodies of these acetylcholine receptors. So in these patients, the thymectomy has also shown good results.
But remember, this is usually in case of acetylcholine receptor antibodies and not the other two types of antibodies as those types are not found in the thymus. So thymectomy is beneficial in patients with acetylcholine receptor antibodies. Before performing the thymectomy, plasmapheresis or immunoglobulin IV should be performed. And of course, the patients that are severely ill, the first priority should be to protect the respiration by intubation and ventilation if that's necessary. Now we have reached the end of this episode, and so it's time for a case study. So here it comes. A 68-year-old male presented to emergency department with slurred speech and suspected CNS stroke. Before the arrival to the hospital, the patient experienced an episode where he bent over and couldn't speak. After this episode, the patient had difficulties with eating and he developed a cough. Patient's CT and CTA didn't show any evidence of hemorrhage or any large vessel occlusion. A neurologist diagnosed him with myasthenia gravis. As part of the diagnosis, atrophonium was injected. Atropine was prepared to be given just in case the patient developed side effects like bradycardia, but it didn't happen. Before the injection, the patient was asked to read a book out loud. There was a significant improvement with return of sharp speech around 60 seconds after the injection. The patient started on pyridostigmine. Further patient history revealed that the physical complaints began around three months ago and patient reported facial weakness and drooping of his eyelids, mostly on the left eye. He got prescribed prism lenses by an ophthalmologist because of the diplopia and ptosis of left eye. Patient's primary care provider thought that his symptoms was caused by transient ischemic attack, TIA. The patient reported that he previously had episodes of slurred speech that waxed and waned and his symptoms was worse in the evening. The serological test showed acetylcholine binding antibodies to be 22.9 nanomole per liter were above 0.5 nanomole per liter is positive. His treatment includes pyridostigmine, 60 mg and prednisone. He is followed up by a neurologist and the next plan is to find out if the CT chest shows any presence of thymoma. So this was the case study for today and this was everything about myasthenia gravis. This episode is also available as a video where 
I explain everything on a whiteboard. So if you prefer to watch videos instead, or if you just want to repeat the same topic in different way, well, then go and subscribe to MedMins on YouTube. The name simply is MedMins. I would definitely recommend you to repeat topics that you are trying to learn because space repetition is key for learning. And if you want to have an overview of all the podcast episodes and the YouTube videos and all other informations, such as transcription of each episode, well, remember you can find everything on medmins.net. And also don't forget to go to the Facebook page that I just created and follow MedMins there. So you can keep being updated whenever I release either a podcast episode or a YouTube video. Okay, so for now, thank you very much. Take care and see you soon.